0: History Podcast from the History Department at Fort Hay State University, home of Victory e. Tiger. Here at Victory History, Dr. Manami Guha and Holly Marquis highlight student and faculty research as well as notable alumni. I'm Holly Marquis and I'm joined today by Megan Householder, who is here to talk about her research, Catalytic Discrimination, How Homophobic Law Enforcement in the 20th Century Led to the Modern Gay Rights Movement. Welcome to the podcast, Megan.
1: Hi, thanks for
0: having me. Can you tell us a bit about yourself?
1: Um, I'm originally from Salina, Kansas. I am currently a sophomore majoring in history and secondary ed. Recently, the type of history I've been interested in is marginalized communities and history that has been less researched.
0: So what drew you to this particular research topic?
1: Well, like I said, I found myself interested in marginalized communities. And when I was deciding on the topic for my paper, I also wanted to research something I did not personally know much about. When thinking about queer history, Stonewall is usually the first and maybe the only thing uh, that comes to mind for many people. What I wanted to find was the history beyond Stonewall in order to understand where the gay rights movement really started, uh, which was with the Mattachine Society in 1950.
0: So set the scene for us prior to the mid-20th century. Uh, what were society's views on LGBTQ identities, and was there an organized queer rights movement?
1: Uh, So the short answer is no. There was no substantial organized movement at the time. And uh, there wouldn't be until Mattachine was founded. One of the biggest reasons for this was because the idea of homosexuality was basically non-existent. They had no word for homosexuality or for heterosexuality because to them being straight was the norm. Even when they came up with definitions for these ideas, anyone who was part of the LGBTQ community was simply uh, considered a quote-unquote deviant heterosexual or a heterosexual committing sinful acts. So, as Harry Hay, who I'll talk about later, said, homosexual was an adjective. It wasn't a person.
0: So, you mentioned Mattachine. I want to hear about them. But before Mattachine, there was a brief movement in Chicago that you talked about in your paper. Tell me about them.
1: So, uh, while Mattachine was the first substantial gay rights group in America... They were not the first official group. That title belongs to the Society for Human Rights, which, as you said, was founded in Chicago in 1924. The goal of this group was to do things by the book, so they applied for and received a charter as a nonprofit in Illinois. Uh, however, their idea to follow the law in order to avoid backlash didn't really work the way they had planned. Then a few months of the organization's founding, the wife of one of the members reported the group to the police. An obscenity charge was filed against the group, and gained traction due to the idea of homosexuality being conflated with uh, obscenity at the time. The society couldn't keep up with the legal fees, and they had to disband.
0: So, in your paper, you talk about how World War II is this really pivotal moment for the queer community because there's a chance for exploration in same-sex environments. There is a uh, movement away from small towns and into port cities. And so once the war is over, law enforcement starts cracking down and creating vice societies. How do these come to be?
1: Right. So I found this part of my research really interesting. Uh, A few years before the war started, prohibition ended and alcohol was legal again. Once the war ended and all the men returned home, bar patronage increased exponentially. Once this happens, local governments were even stricter with enforcement than they had been when alcohol had been illegal. They came up with the idea of these vice squads, which were task forces meant to keep the peace and regulate the new liquor laws put into place. Basically, they were meant to keep this increased bar life from getting too out of hand.
0: So by mid-century, vice squads have a new mission. What's their new goal and what tactics do they use?
1: So the increased bar patronage the vice squad was seeing was not the only change post-prohibition. They were also seeing a new queer nightlife. These vice squads did not have many restrictions, so they took it upon themselves to switch their objective from uh, from reg- regulating liquor laws to regulating homosexuality. At this point, these law enforcement groups were mainly focusing on patrolling for potential homosexual behavior. They had certain tactics to complete this new mission as well, which weren't quite above board. They utilized strategies such as peepholes, cameras, and other methods of clandestine surveillance later on. But in the beginning, they mainly solicited gay men outside of gay bars. They would flirt and try to get the suspect to retaliate and then whip out the handcuffs and put them under arrest if they did.
0: And this wasn't just like local level discrimination, right?
1: Uh, Definitely not. The FBI was actively monitoring and keeping tabs on LGBTQ communities uh, because they considered them a security risk. The FBI and specifically the director at the time, J. Edgar Hoover, created what was known as the Sex Deviants Program, which encompassed all of this surveillance. While they did not take much direct action as of yet, they did make sure to purge any member of the government who happens to be queer.
0: So this FBI-level attempt to root out any homosexuality in their ranks at the direction of J. Edgar, who, who we could have an entirely separate episode on with his own uh, behavior, had some. it had some personal consequences for people. Um, I was really struck by your research on agent John Nichols Sr. So what's his story?
1: So he was an FBI agent who had been there for years. And unfortunately for him, he had a gay son. His son, Jack Nichols, was actually a founder of the Manachine Society of Washington and was very, very active in public demonstrations for the gay rights movement. So Nichols Sr. had tried to convince his son Jack to step back from this movement and be more secretive because he knew it put his career as an agent at risk. However, Jack refused and the two never spoke again. Uh, After some time, Jack's stepfather actually phoned the FBI to complain about having a gay stepson and gave them his full name, basically just outing him and making the connection between Jack and his father really easy for the FBI to make. Nichols Sr. was immediately put on leave and moved away from the FBI HQ. Years after that, he tried to work his way back up the ranks to no avail, and eventually he retired after 32 years as an agent.
0: So, I want to be clear when we say, like, unfortunately for him, he had a gay son, and this is like unfortunate for his career, not like yeah. unfortunate yeah. <laughs> that he was gay, right? But it's so sad that his dad is asking him to step aside for his career, and then his stepdad is also kind of persecuting him. So, even within own families, people are being persecuted. Uh, so, this is the atmosphere of the Lavender Scare. And within this time frame, Harry Hay is going to form the Mattachine Society. So tell me about Harry Hay and the Mattachine. Who are they? How did they get started? What's their goal? So, Hay was the main founder of the Mattachine Society who came up with the
1: original idea. Uh, Both before and during his time in Mattachine, Hay was a member of the Communist Party. This helped him create the society. Uh, This group was founded on the idea that homosexuals were their own group of people who needed their own organizations to fight for them. Their goal was to bring the queer community together for the first time in America and give them a voice. It was important to Mattachine that they could connect and find comfort in each other while also having an organization to defend them against societal prejudice such as police entrapment.
0: So belonging to this group was really important but could pose a lot of danger to an individual in terms of loss of job or public scrutiny. So what kind of measures did they take to protect their anonymity?
1: Um, Since Harry Hay had based the organization uh, of Mattachine off of the Communist Party, it was built around secrecy. There were different guilds or levels of the organization where no one knew who was above or below them or even who the founders really were. All major members um, also swore secrecy, vowing to never give out names of anyone in the organization under any circumstance. Going even further, the group never wrote down dates, names, or other information pertaining to Manachine, nor did they keep photographs in case there were police investigations in their homes.
0: So one of the Manachine's major efforts was to defend victims of police entrapment. And the Dale Jennings trial was pretty important. Who is he and what happens to him?
1: Dale Jennings was a fairly prominent member of Mattachine um, who happened to be a victim of police entrapment. So while many people, including Harry Hay, question kind of the full truthfulness behind his story, there's still really no doubt that he did face some sort of police entrapment. So according to Dale Jennings himself, he was solicited by a vice officer who he refused multiple times. Uh, The officer followed him home, barged inside, and forced Jennings' hand down his pants and then arrested him. What was particularly important about this case was the way that Mattachine went about preparing Jennings' defense. So instead of claiming he was not gay and that it was a misunderstanding, which was often the case in these proceedings, Harry Hay persuaded Jennings to publicly come out. They also formed the Citizens Committee to Outlaw Entrapment, which spread information about what entrapment was to the general public for the first time. Eventually, the charges against Jennings were dropped, and this was considered a landmark moment for the gay rights movement.
0: Did this trial change the way that Mattachine fought entrapment?
1: Uh, It very much did. They realized that a bit of publicity may actually be a good thing and would win some of the public over to their cause. They created the Mattachine Foundation as a front for the organization so they could protect their anonymity while still participating in the public sphere. Through this front, they began to spread pamphlets, newsletters, and even provide personal help to the queer community in a number of ways. They supplied lawyers and legal help to those caught up in the entrapment cases, and even raised money for those affected by societal discrimination. At this point, the popular, popularity of Manachine was at an all-time high.
0: With that popularity, I imagine it's harder to remain anonymous, right? Or under the radar, at least.
1: Uh, it was, especially as a new generation of activists began to join the movement. News new members joined the group and wanted to be even more in the public eye. They became suspicious of the group's secrecy and began to accuse the founders of having ties to communism, which they did, of course. (laughs) Uh, Because the government at the time was apprehensive of both homosexuality and communism, the members of Machine could not afford to be tied uh, to the Communist Party, as it would be another excuse to persecute them. Several meetings were held to discuss this variance of opinion, and eventually the founders stepped down. Mattachine was never truly the same after this, becoming much less centrally organized and splitting into subgroups that each had their own specific agendas.
0: What were the other organizations that grew out of this reaction to vice squad tactics and persecution?
1: Well, after Mattachine saw the success it did, many groups sprung up in its wake. Some of these were actually made up of former Manachine members who wanted to continue the fight, um, even after their original group began to die out. One Inc. was one such group, whose main contribution was One Magazine, that discussed a whole host of gay rights topics. This included gay marriage, equal housing opportunities, and entrapment, which was actually the focus of their first issue. Manachine itself continued on with subgroups such as the Manachine Society of Washington that Jack Nichols co-founded.
0: I'm glad that he didn't let his dad and stepdad, like, tamp down his activism. I know that women were technically allowed in Mattachine, but in practice, it's almost exclusively gay men. So did lesbian groups like the Daughters of Belitis get involved in this fight?
1: A hundred percent. The Daughters of Belitis actually worked quite closely with Mattachine. They kept in close contact, sending each other newsletters and even writing articles in each other's papers. Many women in groups like the DOB would attend Manasheen meetings as well. The daughters of Bulletists were uh, activists in a slightly different way than Manachine, however... Um, they focus more on intersectional issues that may affect those who were gay, women, and people of color instead of mainly just on white gay men like Manachine tended to do.
0: In your paper, you talk about how Manachine gives way to a more modern movement in the form of GLF or the Gay Liberation Front. And this is connected to Stonewall. So before we explain GLF, can you give us the brief rundown on what Stonewall is?
1: Yes. Um, On June 28th, 1969, there was a police raid on a gay bar called the Stonewall Inn. This was in New York City where gay bar raids had been happening fairly frequently in this period. Usually the police were faced with very little backlash at the scene and were able to do what they wanted, but the raid on Stonewall Inn was different. While officers were trying to get suspects from the building into their vehicles, a crowd of other patrons and bystanders formed. They started screaming and cursing at the cops and even began to throw whatever they could find. The crowd picked up coins, rocks, and bricks to throw at these officers, and this was only the start of six days of riots at Stonewall.
0: And what was the Mattachine reaction to Stonewall?
1: So a subgroup of Mattachine saw these riots occurring and felt that it would only lead towards tensions between the queer community and the rest of society. Uh, this subgroup, like the original founders, were convinced that the best way to go about the movement was to only push until you were told to stop. They wrote a letter that they sent to the local government, law enforcement, and the protesters in order to stop these riots. They urged the protesters to go about this in a more organized and peaceful way. This letter ended up having the opposite effect that Manaschina planned and enraged the Stonewall participants. They decided to create their own group, the Gate Liberation Front.
0: So it's a completely different group, but it draws information, uh, inspiration from Mattachine. Uh, how is it different from Mattachine?
1: So the main difference of these groups was their view toward publicity. For the founders of Mattachine, they had considered a, a death sentence for their group. But for the Gay Liberation Front, they saw it as the only way to move forward. They no longer just wanted to educate the public about homosexuality. They wanted to see major societal change. They were holding street protests, taking action against the police, and hosting pride parades. Their focus was to be as in the public sphere as possible and make sure nobody could push the gay rights movement under the rug. GLF rewrote what it meant to be a gay rights activist and became a catalyst for the entire movement for years to come.
0: So as you were researching, what source material did you find most helpful?
1: Um, I was lucky enough that I found a lot of good material early on but I think some of the best sources I used actually came from other sources. I had some material that was about the gay rights movement or Madison overall, and by bin mining using the library's catalog, I was able to find other relevant sources through that.
0: Was there anything that you stumbled on in your research that you ultimately you didn't put in the paper but was still a cool find?
1: Um, there was. I found some articles, actually. Uh, that discussed whether or not the gay rights movement had failed. It dug into the goals of both the modern movement and um, like the original movement of Manachine and how their objectives were different. Um, Ultimately, I ended up disagreeing with some of the research and conclusions they came to. Uh, Plus, it didn't really fit in my paper the way I wanted. So I just decided not to use those sources.
0: What is up next for you in terms of your research?
1: Uh, I plan to focus on outlaw women during the Wild West. There are a few women in particular I'm interested in writing about, which includes Pearl Hart and Bell Star.
0: I'm really excited to see that. And uh, you and I are also going to be doing some research this summer on drag queens and drag kings in Kansas City. So I'm very much looking forward to that and loving that you're interested in bringing to light these lesser known histories.
1: Yeah, I think that all history deserves to be told and also works for me personally because Uh, I get to learn about a lot of super cool stuff and be part of awesome experiences like the research you mentioned.
0: Thanks for joining me today, Megan.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: We'll post a selected bibliography of sources as well as images at our website, victoryhistory.com. That's V-I-C-T-O-R-E, history.com. You can subscribe there by email to get notifications on episodes, and you can find our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Audible, Spotify, or at victoryhistory.com. And special thanks to Nathan Weiss, FHSU Music Composition Major, who has composed our original theme music. And if you're interested in pursuing a degree in history or history education like Megan at FHSU, online or on campus, visit www.fhsu.edu slash history to learn more.